I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Men. A few weeks ago, you and I had a really interesting conversation with an author, Peter Turchin, who talked to us about elite overproduction and how that causes horrible instability in society. You've got too many overeducated people, the likes of you and me, and not enough high status jobs for us to have. And that causes no end of upset. And in the past, we talked about this in the UK, we've managed to avoid uh, the social unrest that some other countries have seen when they've overproduced their elites by sending our elites abroad to the empire. Got rid of them. Off they go. And they can't stay here and cause trouble. Now, here we are today. And we have a similar problem, according to Churchin, where we are overproducing a lot of our elites and we have nowhere to export them to. But we got a really interesting email from one of our listeners. And listeners, by the way, we love getting emails from you. We want your input. We want your questions. We want to answer your questions and comment on your comments on our podcast and in our writing. So keep sending them in. This one, this email suggests that this time around, we haven't exported our elites abroad. We've just exported them into the third sector. <laughs> All right. So one of That's the... That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so what this, um, this listener, thank you, Andy, says, is he says, this is not just about the wealth pump to the ultra wealthy. It's about the flow of funds to quangos, to NGOs, to bureaucrats, the civil service, retirees, gold-plated pensions, charity bosses, special interest groups, and, uh, and you know, I quote, bloody lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> they are- Actually, he agrees with Peter on that. Peter singled out lawyers as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are all part of the modern elite, and many are also the counter-elites. Think about the current COVID inquiry and all these groups headed by QCs vying to get their special interest groups across. Who funds all these groups? Uh, Ultimately, very few of them have a productive role in society because they don't increase wealth or increase its productive capital, but they have a disproportionate voice in society and their burden falls on the everyday worker, the entrepreneur and the grafter. That's them. The modern elite, we've exported into the third sector and they're acting as a drag on the rest of us, on the entrepreneurs and the grafters. They have too much weight when it comes to policy making and to voice. Got to get rid of them. What I, do you I think? mean, I think, honestly, I think that's really perceptive. I mean, you have consistently made the point about gift aid um, and the fact that you can essentially, as a, as a wealthy person, hypothecate you know, a chunk of your tax revenue to the charity of your choice, as opposed to paying it into the things that we've all democratically agreed are the priorities of the country. And I think that obviously that's just an extension of this. It's a classic phenomenon that we've seen over the last kind of like 10 to 20 years, I think, where if you hide behind the label charity, you can basically do what you want and, you know, operate with a certain amount of, of opaqueness. 
And I do think that that whole sector kind of generally needs to be more accountable. And I think that getting rid of a lot of the tax breaks and making it much clearer which kind of charities and, and NGOs, etc., get government funding, which is taxpayer money, and making them more accountable for that um, is, is actually important and like a, a major thing that needs to be tackled. Mm. Well, they all get taxpayer money. There is no such oh, yeah. thing as a charity that doesn't get taxpayer money. Every single one is getting your money and my money. Um, let's not talk about that too much, you'll upset me. But there was in the newspaper this morning a small charity being discussed. Um, in fact, it's quite a big charity in the scheme of because so many are tiny, £130 million in it. I won't name it, you can go look it up. But the key point is this charity is £130 million in it. Gives away thirteen million a year, which means it's going to wind itself down anyway, unless it's getting a lot of, uh, of new contributions in. I don't yeah. know how these people figure the numbers out. Do they have no advice? Anyway, be that as it may, I looked at this and I thought, well, this was quite interesting. I'm going to look up and see what the guy who distributes the thirteen million quid a year, because I wouldn't have any trouble doing that, by the way. What he gets paid, <laughs> and the answer is that his total pay is one hundred and thirty grand, and that includes, and get this, John, get this, twenty thousand pounds a year in pension contributions oh i know i know this is what we're talking about here (laughs) now anyway moving on moving on we were talking about um, talking about these elites and uh, someone suggested to me that we have a look at the Hidalgos in Spain in the 12th century because there was a point um, when and someone who, who's better at uh, 12th century history can write in and tell us more detail on this because I can't find any more detail on it. But the Hidalgos were the, the lowest of the low when it came to the nobility. But the nobility no. of all types didn't have to pay any taxes. So, and the Hidalgos were a fertile lot. Uh, so gradually we got to the point where practically nobody who had any money was paying any taxes. And that led to all sorts of difficulty and upset and indeed social unrest until eventually the Hidalgos were forced to start paying taxes. And that was a rather interesting example, I thought, of the overproduction of elites because these elites weren't necessarily overeducated or anything like that. They're just looking for the status anyway. So that's yeah, the kind of bottom rung of the Spanish elite. Yeah. We're just producing too many of themselves. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Being an elite by luck, which is probably, uh, yeah, yeah, which is what happens if you, you know, maybe you have a family charity, for example, a family foundation, and you can all yeah. go work for it. Kind of similar thing, right? It is similar. I mean, we're getting kind of dangerously close to the whole uh, inheritance tax argument as well. Ooh. But mm. uh, Make that a gift tax, I say. Now, that moves us on neatly, <laughs> neatly, very neatly to today's elite. And we've talked about the, uh, today's elite in terms of them being the kind of people who have defined benefit uh, pensions who work in non-productive industries, etc. But the other big signifier of being a member of the elite in the UK today is owning your home without a mortgage, right? And that's well yeah. over well over 30% of the population can kick back and not pay any attention to fast-rising mortgage rates and fast-rising interest rates. They don't have to worry about this. And they even don't have to worry about inflation if they have one of those nice index-linked defined benefit pensions. That's what I call elite. Oh, I, mean, I, I think Andy was agreeing with me. He mentioned the gold-plated, gold-plated pensions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, I think the, the thing is, the elite may have to, they may have to worry a tiny little bit because it does oh, look good. as if uh, the pots of gold on which they are sitting may not be as as resilient. You, you may actually be able to go wrong with bricks and mortar. Yeah, you never no, know. You can't go wrong with bricks and mortar. <laughs> You know where you well, are we... with bricks and mortar, John. You know where you are. 
It's true, it's true. You do know where you are. It may not be where you want it to be, but you do know where you are. It's uh, no, the latest, the latest uh, RICS survey, so the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, they've just come out this morning um, as we're recording this, and with a, a kind of much, much gloomier outlook and a, a major kind of sharp downturn compared to what has been going on in recent months. So basically, this is basically asking a load of estate agents what they think is going to happen to the housing market. And in recent months, uh, while they were gloomy following the whole Stramash in October uh, with, with interest rates spiking, the kind of market started to recover in kind of February, mortgage rates started going down a bit and everyone started feeling more relaxed about the housing market again. But of course, exactly, because what's happened is mortgage rates have gone back up because it wasn't all Liz Truss's fault that was actually a fact that inflation was a problem, interest rates did have to catch up. And so now that we're talking about mortgage rates, uh, average two-year fix is now up to 6.75%, according to money facts. Suddenly it's not looking so good again. And so the one that caught my eye is where the kind of estate agents expect house prices to be three months from now. And they'd almost got back up to the zero line because basically it's how positive or negative you are. So a number between, you know, plus 50 or plus 100 and negative 100. And they always got back up to zero and uh, the latest one went all the way back down from like negative three to negative 46, uh, which is like a massive shift. And if you map that out against what happens to nationwide house price growth um, on a chart, and they'll be doing it in money distilled later on today, then it's very clear that there's a very, very strong correlation. So it basically says that, you know, if you thought the house price kind of, uh, correction was over then you're wrong it's uh we're going to see further house price falls this year and that's just in nominal terms let alone real terms okay um how close are we going to get do you think to neil's prediction of a 40 percent nominal no hang on 40 percent real fall i think that's too bearish but the main thing that changes my mind on that one way or the other is whether uh, the Bank of England basically over tightens on interest rates and I think that's perfectly possible because the other thing that I've noticed this last week a lot of the recruitment agencies like I think three of the listed recruitment agencies have reported this week and they've all mentioned that the jobs market is getting harder they're recruiting the number of attempts that people want is going up and the number of permanents they want is going down in fact, I was reading yesterday, I think it was Page Group actually laid off some of its recruitment advisors in the UK uh, because of, you know, a dip in activity, which is, I mean, there's something, you know, there's a kind of ironic, you know, I feel sorry for people who are laid off, but, you know, you're getting laid off because you're a headhunter and the job market is meant to be regionally hot. You know, so, I mean, I think that kind of points to there's certainly a cooling off that just hasn't come through to the data yet. Yeah, and we have seen a fall in the number of vacancies, haven't we? Still above a million, but it's yeah. down down significantly well, from peaks. Yeah. And people also point out that that's partly because in the internet era, jobs just hang about for longer because huh. they, huh. they don't get deleted. You know, you don't have to pay the Guardian to advertise your job anymore. So it's sitting on LinkedIn for like weeks and months with, you know, sort of like junk mail kind of, responses but nobody's actually taking these down so I, I think the 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 vacancies number is probably distorted by that sort of thing what is um, there no non-dodgy data john can he trust any of it oh, man can't trust anybody uh, that'll be yeah. in the elites that will right exactly between that and the mainstream media ah. thank god we are not the mainstream media i know <laughs> 
Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Brian Pellegrini, founder of Intertemporal Economics. We discussed the Bank of England's monetary policy versus the Feds, and Brian's going to tell us why he thinks the Bank of England is doing a better job. John and I will discuss afterwards whether he is right on that or not. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Marin. Great. Now, listen, I know that your uh, particular area of interest at the moment, and ours as well, by the way, is inflation. What's going on with it in the US, in the UK, globally? Are we going to see inflation fall towards the end of this year? If it does, is it all over and we're back to 2% forever? Or are things never that simple? So how about we just start with you giving me an overview of where you think we are with inflation? We're likely to see inflation come down pretty rapidly in the second half of 2023. And I think it's going to be so rapid that it actually frightens the central bankers a little. And people had focused very heavily on the supposedly hawkish aspects of Powell's statements, the recent press conference, and then the minutes that came out yesterday, July 5th. And they've looked at the disclaimers that he said that basically that if inflation is higher than we expect then we will continue raising. What he's really saying, which is that if inflation reacts in a way that's better than we expect, we're going to react to that as well. And I think if you look at the minutes, there was a lot of discussion about fear of how big and how powerful the lag and the effects of monetary policy are for the tightening that took place over the last year and a half, right? So they're saying, is there another shoe that's waiting to drop, or are we past all that? There's a feeling, you think, on the committee that they've done enough. In the actual talk, the last comments that Pearl gave, he talked about the skip, which you mentioned in, in your latest piece of work, the idea that it's really just a pause and there'll be more later, there's more rises to come. But if inflation does come down in the way that you expect, then there'll be no more rises. We might actually see cuts. Definitely. I mean, he outright promised that. Uh, one of the reporters brought the subject up and, and it kind of was addressed but didn't get followed through on was that the projections all show lower monetary policy rates in 2024 and 2025 than at the end of 2023. And a reporter asked why that was if Powell didn't see a recession occurring. And neither do I in 2023, at least. And his statement was, as inflation comes down, in order to maintain real interest rates at a constant level, the Fed would have to cut, right? So by saying that, he's prematurely easing because he's setting everyone's expectations, right? So he he sort of undercut himself. But he outright said, if inflation comes down, they're going to do what they need to do to keep real interest rates at a stable level, which they see as a magic number. And I think that as the Fed is proven wrong in its inflation expectations, right? That they're going to be put in a very difficult position where they need to justify their past actions. And in 2025, in the aftermath of an inflationary 2024, it's going to look pretty clear that this was done in reaction to the 2024 presidential election, right? The Biden administration has three and about to have a fourth nominee on the board, right? So Biden has a majority of the board that are beholden to him. And he's picked, uh, by and large, uh, PhD economists that are people who are tend to be politically beholden to the person that chooses them, as opposed to a career bureaucrat who is less likely to be partisan. 
That's just loose money into next year. But can I just go back a little bit? Because this is it's a complicated business, this. You expect inflation to come down in the US into the second half of this year significantly faster than it looks like the Fed believe inflation will come down. So before we go any further, I want to ask you what it is that you think will drive that. Why are your expectations different to that? That seems like the key point before we move on to next year. That's a great question. Um, well, I think that the aftermath of the supply chain unwind has been more dramatic than people expected. And if you look at the um, Institute for Supply Management's manufacturing report and you look at customer inventories, what's really interesting is that the number of uh, firms reporting their inventories being too low is still relatively high, but not at crisis levels, right? So there's still disturbance in the supply chain, right? But the number of firms that are reporting inventories being too high is at crisis levels, right? And and so if the number of firms that had inventory being too low wasn't elevated, then this would be all over the news that there's an inventory crisis. And so the inventory situation in the United States uh, in the factory sector feeds just about a one month lag. So factory prices in the United in the United States lead factory prices in China with about a one month lag. And it's a pretty close relationship with the the factory prices in China being more volatile. And so right now, factory prices in China are in outright deflation, and they are down at levels seen in prior recessions. So we should expect to see that feedback into US consumer prices with the appropriate lag and that lag starts to show up in the latter half of this year. So we should in the next few few months, really start to see core inflation really start to come down appreciably. Okay, interesting. Now I keep an eye on the uh, the true inflation numbers, which were mm-hmm. pretty seem pretty good on the way up, and that they mm-hmm. led their official inflation numbers on the way up, and they're now only just over two percent, which kind of tells us that this is coming, right? And that then gives the Fed an excuse to slash rates into next year to set Biden up for the election. Is that what you're thinking? Definitely. The important factor to keep in mind is that Powell is not himself a partisan, right? He is a conciliatarian, right? His job is to make a consensus on the committee so that it looks like the Fed is doing things in a calm, collective, and nonpartisan manner, right? But if he has a majority of the board who are outright partisans, you know, I don't want to demean these people, but they have their agendas. And it's pretty clear from the minutes that there's a substantial portion of the committee that wants to ease. And based on Chairman Powell's statements and his proclivity for repeating things that people say to him, we can tell who is influencing him. And it's pretty clear that that is the Biden group who are influencing him and will drive the chairman's vote, which is approximately 50% of the voting weight of the committee in real terms. Everybody has one vote, but in reality, the power, the consensus power of the chairman is about 50%. So taking that as the direction for Fed policy, it looks likely that we're going to get some easing. And in the aftermath, of all this, right? What's interesting is that, you know, the Bank of England and the Fed have both taken a a bit of a hit to their credibility. A bit. (laughs) So the Bank of England, both having very similar events, right? So they tightened and a leveraged part of the financial structure that they really didn't understand blew up, right? In the UK, it was liability-driven investing. In the US, it was treasury funding by regional banks that were acting like 
private equity funds. Yeah, and they reacted to both of those events in roughly the same way, which was to paper it over and to act in an inflationary manner, right? And say, oh, well, this wasn't really our fault. You know, don't ask us to solve all your problems, but... Uh, and, so, and they papered it over, right? And people realized that that's an inflationary mess, right? That that tightening was undone by the papering that took place to replace the money supply that had been shrunken, right? But the major difference is that the Fed has never been as open and honest as the Monetary Policy Committee is, right? So it's only happened once that the chairman has been outvoted in the United States, whereas it's regular occurrence for the head of the Bank of England to be, he's just another member of the committee. And so the Bank of England has, I think, uh, a more intellectually honest and intellectually open committee driving it that is willing to say, and this is really important recently, that they've been willing to say, we're not sure what's going on, we're going to be really careful. And if you look at the Fed, it's a completely cavalier attitude. We've got it is covered, no problem. Inflation's a problem and we're on top of it. We got it. And you're welcome, America, is basically the Fed's message. That's going to have negative consequences for the Fed. And as a result for investors, I think that if you're looking to bet on inflation expectations, the credibility that the Bank of England, the Monetary Policy Committee is able to nurture with its honesty and with its humility. It's going to be a lot more valuable than what's left over at the Fed, which is going to look like a completely politicized institution. And in 2026, depending on who's president, you know, it's a very good possibility that you have a, a replay of what went on in the transition from Lyndon Johnson to Richard Nixon. And Lyndon Johnson had a Fed chairman who he brought in as a team player, right? Chairman Martin would never just change the interest rate for the benefit of the president, but for policies, right, that happened to benefit the president, he was willing to do it. When Richard Nixon came in, he fought constantly with Chairman Martin because he was a Democrat and wasn't going to do what Richard Nixon wanted him to do. Richard Nixon was a Republican. So Richard Nixon brought in a PhD economist, Arthur Burns, who was... Poor Arthur Burns, as we always <laughs> call him. Poor Arthur Burns. He did redeem himself to a certain extent in 1974, but it, certainly in 1972, he was a political hitman for the president and, and acted accordingly. And then in 1973, justified his actions by saying, well, what would you have us done? You know, everybody wants to have low unemployment in good times. You know, the Fed's credibility was wrecked as a result. Arthur Burns was one of those chairmen who was thought to be more interested in the state of the economy in general and people's living standards and lifestyles than he was in actually bringing inflation down. It's not that he couldn't have brought inflation down. It's just that he had too many priorities, right? Yes. And, and but who was setting those priorities? It's his political boss is really the answer. Among the Watergate documentation, right, that came out was a confidential letter from Richard Nixon to Arthur Burns in November of 1971. And he says that people don't care about they don't like inflation, but they don't vote based on it. They vote based on unemployment. Richard Nixon blamed his loss in the 1960 presidential election to tight monetary policy by the prior Fed chair. And he said, don't let that happen again in 1972. Make sure I get elected. Burns did that. And so I think that certainly in 1972, Burns was acting explicitly politically in holding off on raising interest rates until he felt that the lag effects would be past the election. So I, I think that is definitely the case. I think after that, right, in 1973, 
then the the issue of too many priorities really starts to come out, right? And then it becomes, well, what do you want us to do? Like, we, we, you know, we want an unemployment to be low and we don't want the housing industry to be too hurt and these things. So, you know, so to a certain extent, then it becomes too many pots on the stove to mind. But a lot of that was justification and an attempt to hold off the political criticism that was taking place as the Nixon regime was collapsing. And at this time, Arthur Burns was having, uh, you know, a, a realization that this man who he admired and that he had helped was a dastardly person and, and not a good guy, right? And so, you know, in his personal diary, Burns talks about finding out the dirty tricks that Richard Nixon had played on him to teach him lessons about being, you know, so-called about being loyal and never questioning the president. And so I do think that he was a bit naive in 1972. And, and in the course of 1973, that realization happened. All those lessons that he learned, right? And any potential for reformation of the Fed was then lost in 1977, when Jimmy Carter came in and, and got sick of him and said, well, I, I want easy money and just like the last guy had. What the heck? Yeah. And then we had William Miller. Right? Exactly. And he didn't exactly. last very long. But he had that idea that raising interest rates raised inflation. Yes. Yes. Didn't we have that recently in Turkey? Oh, the kind yes, of thing that was, never, go, never goes away. The and the results were shockingly similar, right? And the thing to remember is... William Miller had an only 18-month term. It wasn't because Jimmy Carter didn't like the job he did. He got promoted, right? The Treasury Secretary was critical of the Fed, of saying that they were not tight enough in 1978 and that they needed to tighten. Meanwhile, Jimmy Carter and William Miller wanted to stimulate fiscally, and Jimmy Carter wanted to send everybody 50 bucks in the mail. Yeah, he would have had such a good time if he'd been president during COVID. Well, the, the, the similarity between the events of the oil shock events of 1973 and 1979 and COVID and the Fed's reaction to it, right? And the Bank of England are mirror images, right? And, and the result has been the same inflationary mess. And we'll see if they learn that lesson. But that idea that something has caused a temporary but severe degradation of the supply capacity of the economy, but did not touch the demand side of things. And the Fed is completely, and the central banks in general, are flummoxed by how to deal with that because they say, well, should we tighten and crush demand to fit supply and then cause some sort of a long recession? Or do we try and bridge that gap and let it cheat and hope that, well, this diminution of supply will be covered by inventories, all right? And the result is that all three times, right, in 1973, 1979, and in 2020, the central banks and the governments completely overestimated the hit to demand that was going to take place. And as a result, they not only validated but doubled down on the price increases that were in the system by, you know, supporting demand at a time when it really didn't need to be supported. So they really haven't le learned any lesson on that aspect that if you have something bad happens that's totally out of the blue, you kind of got to just take your medicine, right? You, you, you need to allow demand to fall. And instead of trying to say, well, maybe we can be the Candyman and, and help everyone avoid this, this unfortunate incident. Ben Broadbent gave uh, a speech back in May where he describes that and basically saying, you know, it was up to us to 
come in during COVID and and replace the, the shrunken money supply with newly created money. And they did not expect it to sit in bank accounts like it did. And they did not expect then demand to then come roaring back shortly after. And and the situation is is remarkably similar to the events of 1979. But the, the difference now, of course, is that we're, we're not going to get a Paul Volcker coming in to shove interest rates up, as, up to the levels they were then and make it all go away. But we're going to get this bout of disinflation coming through that makes everyone feel just fine. So I suppose the two questions then. Mm-hmm. What is it that will drive a resurgence of inflation, we uh, we, we, we can agree that we expect inflation to be very volatile going forward, but I wonder what you think it is that will drive the next bout of volatility. And uh, I'll let you ask ask that, answer that bit before I bring up the secondary question. Really what it comes down to is the, is the tightness of the labor market, right? So the labor market is extremely tight. So that means that if any sort of increase in orders occurs, right, a business needs to then not only find new workers, but steal them away from others, right? So until you get an appreciable loosening of the labor market such that excess capacity can build up so that there are second and third lines of production available to businesses that they can bring online, they can operate profitably as they are. But if a big order comes in, they can fill that order without having to raise prices appreciably is the big difference, right? And so the labor market remains tighter than tight in the United States and the in the UK, right? And that was something that was extremely tight in 2019. And the dislocation to the labor force that took place in 2020 and 2021 made that much worse, right? So we were already in a bad place and, and COVID sort of jumped us into the middle of a bad equilibrium. The problem is, is that you have, and we had talked about this, um, you know, why America is not going back to work. Even now, as the labor force participation rate is returning to its pre-COVID rate, the people are different, Right. So the, the older age ranges, the participation rate has fallen, but lower ages, young workers are participating at sky high rates because wages are growing so fast. So the capital structure in terms of the people, the number of people, who those people are, and what they do has changed relatively significantly in the past three years. So you need to change the physical capital structure, the actual machines on the ground to get an efficient operating economy. But how do you do that if you don't have the workers to install the machines, right? So that's the problem is that you're stuck in a catch-22 where you can operate relatively smoothly as long as things aren't going too fast. But as soon as you try to step things up, the system starts to break down because there is not that excess capacity available. And there is no way to restructure the system because they will never allow that excess capacity to build up. Anytime unemployment starts to rise, they ease. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa we don't want to be responsible for a recession, right? And, and you know, that, that's, that's really the key is that to get from an inflationary equilibrium to a low inflation equilibrium, you need a bad recession that kind of comes out of nowhere as far as people are concerned. And the Fed doesn't want to be the one responsible for causing a recession just to cause a recession, right? Because, well, you're all making too much money, right? Who wants to be the one that does that? So what they do is, and this happened in the 1970s and it's happening again today, is they say, we're going to run things a little slow 
slower than potential growth, right, for a few years. And if you're just patient, it's going to take two or three years, but we'll get there and we won't have to have a recession. The problem is, is that you never get there, right? Because A, they don't really know what the rate of potential growth is because it's not a thing you can measure, right? And the second thing is, is that even if the growth in raw dollar terms, right, of the the potential growth rate of the economy keeps moving up, right, the efficiency, the flexibility of that does not grow or does not change unless you've got a real a significant amount of capacity that people can work with, right? So that restructuring of the capital structure needs space. And so as long as they keep one of the, and this is the one of the indicators that I watch very closely in the minutes of the Fed meetings, the staff report section lists how long until they think the output will be below potential output, right? So right now we're in an excess demand situation, excess output. And that has been, so output has been above potential since COVID started or since since shortly after, you know, the, the worst days of COVID, right? Say Q3 2020. And what's basically happened is they've kept pushing back and forth this magical date that we will exit the inflationary equilibrium. So they say we expect it to be, you know, uh, output to be above potential until 2024. And, and then in this last meeting, they said until 2025. And during the worst of the inflation, they were saying 2026. So it, they move it back and forth and we'll never actually get there, right, is the issue is that they'll say, oh, we just need to be patient. We just need to be patient. But the, the, the solution never comes. And that's, that's exactly what happened in the 1970s. And, and it's developing again today. And that's exactly how you create a high and volatile inflation environment. Okay, so here we are. We've established all the bad news. How on earth does an ordinary investor deal with this kind of environment? Where does their money go? There's two aspects, right? One is that standing still, there are going to be times when you can make what look like high nominal returns, right? But you've got to be cognizant of what, what is your real return. Right. So you have to be thinking in terms of where is the red hot locus of inflation going to be? Right. So where is it that prices are not only being validated, but money is flowing to and, and expanding those prices? Right. And, you know, these are the, the situations where you have things that eventually make it into the news. Right. So container shipping was in 2021 and 2022 an example of that. Right. I think that in the food and fuel complex, now with renewable diesel, the connection between vegetable oils and particularly soybean oil and diesel prices, which is globally used for transportation, right? I mean, the, in the United States, we love our gasoline, so it, that market had been connected for some time. But now, um, the majority of the diesel sold on the West Coast is actually renewable diesel made from vegetable oil. And this is different from biodiesel, which is recycled and is has to be mixed, right? Renewable diesel can directly be used in the engine and is exactly the same thing as petroleum diesel. So you have now a point where there's any t- if there's a shock to agriculture markets or to energy markets. Those two things are connected and will feed on each other because if diesel prices go up, farmers will plant more soybeans and to plant more soybeans, they're going to need more diesel. Okay. So it makes sense for investors to have exposure to agriculture one way or another and have exposure to the energy market. I think, well, yes. And I think to look for places where supply chains are distended, right? 
low elasticity items, places where supply chains are distended, and those are the places where you're likely to get these explosions in prices. The other aspect is to think about the election cycles and the credibility of the banks, right? So the simple fact is that the, the Fed is on a political calendar that right now that's a lot shorter than the Bank of England. And so even if you didn't think that there was more intellectual credibility and quality on the, the Monetary Policy Committee, which I do think there is, but even if you didn't have that opinion, simply the pressure, the political pressure that the Fed is in is, is likely to get them to ease prematurely. And so, you know, you have like this horse race between the Bank of England and the Fed going on where they're both saying, we're going to stay tight as long as we need to. And, you know, we're going to hold stick to our guns. I would bet on the Bank of England and uh, uh, against the Fed in this. And, and I think that that the gap in credibility between those two banks is going to grow. And that's going to have an effect on the currency. It's going to have an effect on interest rates and, and asset prices in general. So what's it going to do to asset prices in the US going into the end of this year? Well, into the end of this year, there's probably going to be a really nice boom. Everybody's going to go, oh, wow, inflation's going down and the Fed's cutting interest rates and everything's great. And it's just like they, you know, we all wanted it to be. Okay, so this is going to turn out to have been a fantastic year for equity markets, for example. Probably at the end of the year, yeah, but the first half of 2024 and, and inflation starts to come back and people start to get worried and then it, 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 it comes apart pretty quick. But, but yeah, to 2023 at the end of the year will probably look like a pretty great year for equity markets. And what about gold? Is that a good hedge against inflation, against this kind of inflation? Yes, it is. I mean, the concern is, is that the central banks start to interfere with the gold market because they don't want it to become an alternative to currencies. It's a very good hedge against low real interest rates. That's what it's a hedge against, not inflation, against low real interest rates. So uh, the problem is, is that in the next inflationary cycle, the problem is, is that they're going to not be able to raise interest rates without inverting the yield curve almost immediately. So the central banks are going to be stuck in a little bit of a position. And, and the way that they're going to deal with that is yield curve control, right? They're going to follow the Bank of Japan and prop up the long end of the, of the yield curves. So you could have a situation where real interest rates very suddenly increase. So I would not be buying gold right now. I would wait until the gold market gets slaughtered in a a sudden increase in real interest rates, and then I would buy because then there will be a lot of shakeout. But in the meantime, it's going to look very tempting, uh, but I would be careful. All right, Brian, let me ask you then this. Uh, you've given us a view on gold, but let's see what your view on gold is compared to another asset class. I'm afraid I always ask this question at the end of a podcast, and I think I know how you're going to answer it. If you had to hold for 10 years, for 10 years, gold or Bitcoin, which would it be? Gold, definitely. <laughs> we're, definitely we're gold. We're never going to get the wrong answer, are we? We're always going to get the right answer. All the all the questions about Bitcoin aside or whatever, like I'm pretty sure that people will still value gold in 10 years. I'm not so sure about Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's, that's the bet. That's a, a very fair way to put it. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. We hugely appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that was pretty interesting, John. I hope you agree. I think Brian's fascinating. And he was also, of course, right that I recorded that interview with him before we had the uh, US CPI numbers out earlier this week. And obviously, they're now back to, well, not, not quite to target, but what you might consider to be reasonable levels. And he's looking at that and saying that 
he thinks that the Bank of England has done a better job than the Fed, but the Fed has got inflation. Well, I don't know if they've got inflation, but inflation is back to reasonable levels. And in the UK, our last number came in at 8.7%. Yeah, it's very it's very kind of Brian. Um, it's, it's atypical to hear anyone saying a good thing about the UK, particularly in relation mm-hmm. to you know the Fed in the US. I mean, the, the one thing, and that really was an interesting conversation, but the one thing that I would say, because I saw someone else kind of tweeting about this the other day, about how, oh, you know, the Fed's preserved its credibility and that's helped it with inflation. I, mean, I hate to say it, but I think the stonking great stockpile of natural gas and shale oil kind of, you know, buried beneath American soil that they've kind of been digging out for, you know, the last kind of 10 years or so actually really helped with inflation there. Mm, mm. I mean, energy has been the fundamental thing making the numbers look bad in Europe and the UK in general and the thing that's made Britain stand out as an outlier is the energy price cap and the way that basically the difference between the way we subsidised our electricity bills and the way that for example the Spanish did it and the Germans did it and the French did it I mean I, I think that we're going to find that by the end of this year the Euro European area including the UK Inflation has largely kind of converged, and the Britain's not going to look as much of a as much of an outlier as it was before. But other than that, I mean, it's interesting that he's saying that, that you know the Bank of England structure is more intellectually honest. It's interesting, isn't it? From because from our point of view, we look at the Bank of England and we think, well, maybe it's intellectually honest, but that doesn't mean that it can see past its own groupthink. Yeah, and I mean, there is an element of. You know, it's fine to be intellectually honest, but if all you're doing whenever you sit in front of the Treasury Committee is saying, computer said no. No, it's tricky, then, this, isn't it? The models, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. They're not saying what we thought they would say. Yeah, there's a difference between kind of like humility and kind of baffled, it's not my fault indifference. Um, which I, I feel is slightly more the way that the Bank of England is. You know, leaned. John, we've got a special file now for hate mail from the Bank of England. <laughs> Stop talking about my gold-plated pension. (laughs) Give it a rest on the DBs. Um, Now, you know, the interesting thing about what Brian says is that he's he's clearly going to be right that inflation in the US is going to be very low or getting significantly lower going into the end of this year. He said even so low that it's going to begin to frighten the Fed and Mm. make them feel that they're wrong again on their expectations. And then they need to put in this difficult position where they need to look at what they've done in the past and, and justify it when they've maybe gone up possibly too fast by the end. But, you know, Brian really doesn't think this is over. You know, when he looked at the numbers that that came out this week on CPI, he said, yes, absolutely, that's what I expected. But look underneath, and there's a lot of things going under there that makes the economy really vulnerable to inflationary shocks, shocks going forward. You know, the labour market is still very tight. While the most acute period of, of labour market shortages passed, it's still, still a mega mismatch between skills needed and skills provided. And, uh, you know, you can see the tightness at, at every level. So he doesn't see this as being over at all. He is still talking about 1970s redux over the next uh, four or five years. Yeah, and no, I mean, that sort of, that I think would be certainly our base case as well. The idea of inflation volatility again. And obviously, you know, the Fed wants to keep real interest rates at a certain level, as Brian sort of mentions, but that suggests that unless they are willing to look through all this and, and sort of Brian implies, but well, he doesn't imply, basically states that they're kind of politically compromised. 
um, then we're likely to see a more kind of like pro-inflation uh, kind of tone from whoever the next kind of the government is. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's. I think we'll, we'll get a lull, and everyone will be lulled into a false sense of confidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let then, let me end know. with one quote from what uh, Brian wrote just after we we did that interview with him. Uh, on the CPI numbers. This does not represent a potential soft landing for the Fed, but rather an inflationary pressure bomb waiting for them to take their foot off the brake. That's good. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi, Anna Briar-Ruffin, with help from Stacey Wong. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Brian Pellegrini and, of course, to John Stepek. Finally, my weekly reminder, sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled, link in the show notes. I can't believe that there are any of you who haven't signed up yet. How many times do I have to tell you? Get on with it. You won't regret it. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.